It's good to see you all. Uh, This morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And this morning's sermon is connected to where Pastor Stephen left off at our Christmas Eve service. So if you were at our Christmas Eve service, Pastor Stephen preached through Acts, uh, sorry, Acts, Luke 2, 1 through 7. Um, And this was kind of intentionally planned because we knew Friday was Christmas Eve, Saturday was Christmas, and then Sunday is day after Christmas. Um, So we kind of bookended Christmas with these two messages uh, and with these two texts. Um, And so to begin this morning, I I wanted to share with you about uh, a war for Christmas that's being waged that um, I'm not sure if you know about. How many of you know that there's a war for Christmas being waged? It's actually taking place really close to our community. Um, specifically, this war, I've had, I've had the privilege of having a front row seat sitting up at the church office at the conference table watching two of our pastors have a just duke it out over Christmas. Specifically, it's, it's Pastor Stephen and Pastor Phil, both of whom are not here this morning. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Um, and you can decide by the end of this message which one of them is right. It's not my point to point out who's right and who's wrong. But the debate is this. The debate is when can we start decorating for Christmas and listening to Christmas music? <laughs> Phil is very adamant. No Christmas music before Thanksgiving. It's just, it is like a sin. And I'm sure as I say that, some of you in this room are going, Amen. Stephen, on the other hand, has a much different opinion. I think he starts listening to Christmas music in July. Um, And so I'm sure, as I mention this, you've already decided which of those camps you fit into because uh, it seems to be like a hotly debated debated topic. Like if the radio starts playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving, some of us are like, how dare they? That is just wrong. And I'm sure some of you were surprised when you came in this morning that we still have our Christmas tree up. <laughs> because, um, and that we're actually going to be talking about the message of Christmas today on the, not December 25th, but December 26th. And so, my purpose in bringing this up is simply to pose a sort of cliche question, which is this Is the message of Christmas just for Christmas time? Is it just. From Thanksgiving up to December 25th? Is it, is it valid to celebrate on December 26th? On July 26th? Um, when should it be celebrated and thought about? And does the advent of the Messiah have bearing on all of life? Not just a period of time from Thanksgiving to December 25th. And I think as good Christians we would all nod our head and say yes. But... I, I pose that question because I, I want us to see this morning in our text that, yes, in fact, this does bear, have bearing on all of our lives at all times. And there is actually a reason that we set aside time every single year to remember this, to specific, specifically just to remember this. And so my hope by the end of this, this sermon is that we'll all agree on just how important the Advent the birth of Jesus is to our faith and the story of Scripture. And this will be expressed in my, big messi- in my big message, my big idea. Yeah, there it is. God gives peace to the lowly 
through a lowly Savior King. And so, as I said, this text is very connected to what's Pastor Stephen talked about our Christmas Eve service. You'll see some overlap, but you'll see some, some different nuances on some of the things that he brought up. And the order um, of my big idea largely follows the organization of this sermon. So just, just so you can, that, it's helpful to me when you can kind of track in a sermon. And so we're going to look at the peace that God gives, those to whom he gives it, and how he brings this peace about. Does that make sense? Yeah. So starting in verse 8, let's read this together. We'll read through verse 14. So we're jumping into the middle of a story. Jesus was just born in Bethlehem in a manger. As Pastor Stephen talked about, this was at the right time, in the right place, at the right moment, with the right people. It's just everything was set up by a sovereign God. And then in verse 8, it says this, And, or now, in the same region. So there's a switch. The camera pans over. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So before we jump into this, to back it up, I already backed it up one step. Jesus was just born in the right place, right time, with the right people. Everything's set up. That's that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But before this, if you go back and read how Luke introduces this whole thing, if you read all 80 verses of chapter 1, Luke actually prepares his readers for what is coming in chapter 2. What I mean to say is in Luke 1, you learn that God is about to do something extremely significant. He is, in accordance with his covenant promises to his people, about to send them their Savior, the Messiah, the rightful heir to the throne of David, And he will bring light into the darkness. He will save the lowly. He will redeem Israel from her sins. And so now when we jump into chapter 2, we see how Luke starts actually detailing. It's it's almost like he he gives this big picture through through narrative. Angel shows up to Mary. All these things happen. They sing these songs that have this amazing theology. But then the camera just points down. And we see this scene of the, of the Messiah actually being born, and now these shepherds in the field. So now it's laid out in detail for us. So when we get into verse 8, again, Jesus was just born, the camera shifts, and we see these shepherds who are tending their sheep by night. It's just an ordinary night. These guys are out in the field with their sheep, except it's not an ordinary night. <laughs> out of nowhere... An angel of God appears, and the glory of God shines around these shepherds. So this is probably what these guys did every single night. It was like, I don't know if anybody's worked a graveyard shift. I thankfully have not. But when I know people that work a graveyard shift, it's like, I sit there, and I sit there, and I just wait for the night to pass. I mean, is this what these guys are thinking? We don't know what was going on in them, but... 
something very unexpected happens when this angel of the Lord shows up and God's glory shines around these shepherds. And just, if we read this, we're going to see how they react in a second. But this, this was not like a flat, like if you go out into, up to Bradley Lake at nighttime and you bring a flashlight, this was not like a flashlight in a field type situation. This is an utterly overwhelming, magnificent, glorious, frightful experience. I mean, just try to imagine what this would be like. The glory of God showing up in the middle of the night, completely unannounced, completely unexpected. And look at how the shepherds react at the end of verse 9. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I mean, the, the... the way that it's written in the original language, it's almost like they feared fear is almost how it's written. It's, it's like an idiom. I mean, it's expressing these guys were freaked out. They were utterly scared. And we don't know. Did they fall down? Were they overwhelmed to the point of being unable to speak? Uh, regardless, I think it's worth asking why were they afraid? Like, of what were they afraid? And we see that they were afraid of the glory of the Lord. And so, though our text doesn't say, what we can deduce as we, if you, if you are familiar with Scripture and you read through the Bible, when God unveils his glory, when God shows up, the human response is one of laying prostrate. Utter fear. It reminds me of Isaiah 6. You guys know Isaiah 6? Isaiah has this heavenly vision, and he sees the throne room of God, and what is his initial response? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. That is his gut reaction to seeing the glory of God. Fear. And so I, I, I truly believe that if God were really to show up in this room right now and unveil it, I mean, we would all be falling on our faces. Fear would overtake us. That we are faced with something so, someone so magnificent, so glorious. You know, some of you know about a year, a little over a year ago, we, my, my family and I, we were missionaries in Croatia. Um, and actually, part of the thing that God shook us out of the country through this earthquake. And I'm from the East Coast. I, I don't really know what earthquakes are. You all are like, I've been through earthquakes. It's no big deal. But this is, it was scary for its own reasons. We, we were also living in a country that um, everything's br- built out of brick and cement, which is not flexible. Um, and I will, I'll spare you the details, but... This experience, I was faced with something that I could not run from, I could not hide from. Like, I've been through a tornado. You can hide from a tornado. You just go down to your basement. <laughs> Earthquakes, it's like, we saw people did not expect this. They were get, I looked out my window after the, the, the initial shock, and then there were two more. And um, people were, like, getting in their cars and driving away, as if you could run from this thing. And we were faced with something so overwhelming we thought we were going to die. And so, but, but 
God is not an earthquake. This is I mean, he is infinitely larger. And so I, when I read that the shepherds were filled with great fear, it makes sense, doesn't it? And yet, how does God show up? What is his message? These guys are freaked out of their minds. And God's angel, the angel of the Lord said to them, verse 10, fear not. What? What are you talking about, fear not? Fear not. For behold, why? Why should you not fear? I bring you good news of great joy. Their great fear is met with them good, with good news of great joy. And this joy will be for all the people, for all of Israel. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So what is this good news? The Savior is born. He is Christ the Lord and born in the city of David. And then as, as we read, the camera again shifts and we see with this angel a heavenly army praising God. And actually when they're praising and glorifying God... Um, they're saying glory to God in the highest, but then they're actually announcing what is the result of this Savior King's birth. And on earth, peace among those with whom he, that is God, is pleased. So when the angel of the Lord shows up, when God shows up, the shepherds are scared, but they are met not with a message of obliteration, not with a message of you are going to die. But with a message of great joy and of peace. So we'll look at both of these. Good news of great joy. A king, the royal heir of the line of David, born in the city of David, is the, the one who, is, who God would promise to, who would come and through whom he would establish an eternal kingdom has been born. Guys, God here is making a, I mean, think about this. The child was just born, and this is God's first public announcement that this has happened to some random Israelite shepherds. He's come, the king is here, and he's the one who will save his people. He is the Messiah, that's Christ. He is God in the flesh, he is Lord, and he has just arrived this is the good news of great joy. But then this peace, the heavenly army announcing this peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. The word peace, it refers to a state of completeness, of wholeness. So you can imagine a brick building missing bricks and those bricks come together and it's made whole. And for God to bring peace through the Savior King means for him to restore what is broken on the earth. And specifically with regard to humanity. It's to bring restoration, first and foremost, to humans' relationship with God, which is broken and marred by sin and human rebellion against God in Genesis 3. But if you read the Old Testament promises of this Prince of Peace, this is like Isaiah 9, and there are plenty of other passages that talk about this. This, this peace is not just, as, as if this weren't enough, this is not just a restoration, a 
being made complete, a, a restoration to wholeness of the human relationship with God, but it is also speaking about the ultimate establishment of a kingdom of peace, one in which man dwells with God and with each other in peace, in harmony, without human turmoil, sickness, strife, divisions. You know, I, I opened my news feed this morning. And I thought of actually just copying and pasting like the first 10 newsline, uh, headline, headlines that I saw. Just, just to give an idea of, I mean, we all know the lack of peace in our world. Like one of the, one of the first news articles was of a, a house fire that happened yesterday that killed a father and two sons on Christmas and a mother and her and one of the other sons are hurt and probably in the hospital. Or of a shooting on Christmas. I mean, these are the things that go... And, and so when, when God announces peace, this is restoration of the, of the human and God relationship, but this is also restoration of the human and human relationship and the human and creation relationship. In other words, the birth of the Savior King means that a heavenly, divine peace is about to be unleashed on the world, which makes whole and restores all that is wrong in it. All that was lost through human rebellion and God. Human rebellion against God in Genesis 3. And so, I think it's important to ask yourselves, do, do we understand what is happening here? This is a, an epic moment in Scripture where God's peace is being announced and it's going to be unleashed on the world. And so not only does God make a glorious public announcement of this world-altering event that just took place with, our, with the birth of the Savior King in Bethlehem, but the advent of the Savior King means that God comes to humans who should otherwise be scared of him. But he comes announcing a message of peace and of restoration. This is, this is the big tension in this text. This sh- we should be looking at this and saying, this does not fit. What the shepherds would have expected did not happen. And I think a legitimate question to ask as well with this is, does this fit into our understanding of God? That he's the one who actually comes and brings a message of peace, who initiates restoration. This is, that this actually represents his heart. That he desires none to perish, but all to come to faith in his son. That actually because of Jesus... God approaches humans with a message of peace. Yes, judgment will come one day, but right now, he approaches humanity with a message of peace. I want to make you whole again. And I found for myself, and if you're anything like me, you've probably found that it is at hard times to actually believe this astounding nature of God. To be the one who actually comes And offers us peace. That is actually his desire to give us restoration and wholeness. And yet here we see that this is God's disposition. This is how he comes. 
And so we see this magnificent scene. We see that God is bringing peace because the Savior King has been born. But I want to look a little bit more at, in detail, at those to whom this message comes. So, who, we read in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who, who did this message come to? Right here in this text. With whom is God pleased? It's the shepherds. The, God's first public announcement of the birth of the Savior King and his coming reign of peace goes out not to the religious elite in Jerusalem, but it goes out to the insignificant, ordinary, stinky shepherds that are out in the field. And this phenomenon is not just isolated to this text. So if we, if we go back to verse 14, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, or I think NIV actually does a better job than the ESV here. It says, to those on whom God's favor rests. The word translated pleased is rare, and it actually only occurs twice in the Gospel of Luke. The second occurrence in chapter 10, verse 21, helps us understand what kind of, what profile of people God is pleased to give his peace to. So if you turn with me to Luke 10, 21, it says this. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and then he publicly starts thanking his Father in heaven. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That word gracious will is the same word as pleased back in 2.14. The point is those to whom God is pleased to reveal his will, the type of people on whom his favor, his grace, his message of peace rests, are not the wise and the understanding. It's not the proud. It's not those who have it all together. It's not those who are strong. It's not those who are religious, self-righteous, those who have no worries, no anxieties, no fears, no depression, no problems. It's not those who are self-sufficient. It's not those who are really talented. It's the little children. And we need to understand that children in this day and age, we're not prized like they are in our society. We, we prize children. We in America, in Western civilization, we look and we try to train up the next generation. Let the young people take things on. I mean, do you agree that that's a general? Like, we, we, we really do prize young people. And I think that, that that's wonderful. But in this day and age, children were not prized. They were marginalized. They were viewed as a drain. A drain on society. Uh, they were essentially viewed as outcasts. And um, this is how I think, actually, in our culture, um, unfortunately, and I say this unfortunately, um, some might view the elderly or the homeless. And moreover, children, so children are not only outcasts, but th- think about a little child. 
like my eight-month-old son, Jack. Um, he is utterly weak. The only way he can make himself significant is by crying and loud to keep us up at night. That is the only way he can make himself significant. He is weak. He is insufficient. He cannot provide for his needs. He is completely and utterly dependent upon other people. If he did not have parents, and especially my my wife, to take care of him and feed him, there is no chance he could survive in the world. So when Jesus says, those with whom God is pleased are the little children, what is he saying? He's not just talking about my eight-month-old or my four-year-old. He's talking about those who are outcast, those who are marginalized, those who are utterly weak and insufficient, those who are sinful, those who are poor. And the idea of Jesus giving peace, God giving peace to the weak and the sinful and the lame and the poor and the outcasts of society is a massive theme within Luke. So when we read the Gospels, it's actually really a really helpful way to read them and conceive of them is actually to read all of them on their own terms. And part of that is actually comparing and contrasting between them. And we actually see that out of all the Gospels, Luke takes the most time and spends the most energy highlighting the poor, the children, the sick, the sinners, the tax collectors, women. Because women in this day were also marginalized and cast down in society. You can read through, there's a section in Luke 18, it's just like one story after another. This is the only gospel that has the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. This is the only gospel where, there are, where Luke goes into great deal about two thieves on the cross. This is the only gospel that has the Good Samaritan in it. This is the only gospel, I, mean, I, I, can just, I can keep going. Luke wants us to see those with whom God is pleased. Those on whom his favor rests. This is why he says in Luke 18, Jesus says, uh, so this is Luke 18, 16, and 17. He says, let, so, let me, sorry, let me back up here. Has it, it's, I always thought it was weird that the disciples, when, when they brought little children to Jesus, that they're like, get away. Right? They're like, don't, no, no, don't bring your kids to Jesus. And I never understood that until I, until I understood this, this fact that they were marginalized in society. Be like, no, get away from, he's the Messiah, you dirty little children. Get away. No. You, you, you don't come into the presence of a king like that. And what's Jesus' response? Luke 18, 16, 17. No, no, no. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You guys, this is not talking about childlike faith. I don't think it's talking about childlike faith. To receive the kingdom like a child is to recognize your utter insufficiency and weakness and sinfulness. 
Childlike faith, a faith that is simple and believes, I think is part of that. But I think this is much more about receiving it like a child. One who does not deserve it. One who readily admits and humbly admits before an almighty God, like the shepherds bowing prostrate. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. It is to recognize and admit our sinfulness and our neediness. So it's not just about being weak. Because the reality is we're all weak. If we really boil it down, even the Pharisees were weak. They needed the Savior. But, they were, but the difference is those who receive the kingdom like a child and those who do not. Those who receive it like a child, admitting readily their weakness, receive the peace that comes because the Savior King was born. And, the, and, and those who do not, who are too proud to admit their need, they actually end up ironically rejecting the peace that God gives. Like somebody can spend their whole life trying to earn peace with God and forfeit it because they, just, they didn't admit their own weakness and their own sinfulness. And so as we read this, the, the, the message is that there is actually really good news for us today, right? Weakness, sinfulness, insufficiency, contrary to what we might think, those things are not the exception for entrance into the kingdom of God. Those things are the rule. It's not like the kingdom of God consists And those who get in are all these really great people who have everything together and they're these awesome individuals and then there's like that guy. Like how did he get here? That's not how it works. It's the weak and the broken and the needy that have, that that receive, that can receive the peace of God. So if you're broken and hurting, if you're highly aware of your weakness and your insufficiency and your sinfulness, if you are bearing the weight of the shame and guilt of your sin, the message today is that God, through Christ, has acted to give you peace, to give you wholeness, to make you right with him. But then the other question is, so how is God going to bring about this peace? Like, how does this, how does the birth of a baby bring about a kingdom of peace? How does this make sense? So if we go back to chapter 2 of Luke, we read in verse 12, this will be a sign to you. And I'll explain why that's significant in a second. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. There is something seriously wrong with this picture. Because this baby is born in the city of David. Like, the person back at this time reading this would go, Oh man, this is the king. This is the Messiah. He is royalty. Divine royalty. And he's laying in a feeding trough. And Pastor Stephen talked about this at our Christmas Eve service. 
But it's interesting that Jesus laying in the trough is, is the sign. Like that's what was going to sit, like, <laughs> I don't think a, a non-royal, divine royal baby would be laying in a feeding trough. So if there was another baby born in Bethlehem, laying in a nice warm house, that was not Jesus. That was not the Christ. It's the baby laying in a feeding trough. That's the sign. Like, that's what the angel says. You will recognize this king in this way. And as Stephen mentioned at our Christmas Eve service, this picture serves to foreshadow what type of king Jesus is going to be. He's the unexpected king, as Phil said. One who wears a crown of thorns and not of gold. And specifically, though, um, just as Luke goes to great lengths to highlight, so remember we talked about he highlights this section of society, the poor, the outcast, the weak, the marginalized, the sinners, and it's those to whom Jesus comes. Just as Luke goes to great lengths to highlight Jesus' ministry to those sorts of people, to us, so he also goes to great lengths to show that Jesus becomes the ultimate outcast in order to rescue and bring peace to such people. And you know where that starts? It starts right here. A baby, a little child, born in a manger. God's peace comes to the lowly through a lowly Savior King. And if you read through the Gospel of Luke, like if you sit down this afternoon and just read through the whole thing, it's long. But you could go to almost, I think, any story of Jesus interacting with people and see. Peace. He's bringing peace to these broken and sinful people. He gets on their level. He, he sits down and eats food with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. That's who he identifies with. And actually, there is this part of Luke's gospel. You can flip over to Luke 23, 27. I'm sorry I'm making you flip this morning, but there's like 40 of us, so I, I can do it, you know? Um, there's something that Luke does that really gets at this, that Jesus becomes the ultimate outcast to save the outcast. Luke 23, 27. So this is just before Jesus begins the last leg of his journey to the cross. And he prefaces the whole journey. Like if he was writing a book, this would be the introduction to his book. He prefaces it by telling his disciples a quote. He quotes Isaiah 53, 12. And he says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Luke, and, and by the way, this is the only time that this particular saying is recorded anywhere in the Gospels. And that's significant. Luke is trying to send us a very specific message. And Luke makes it clear that Jesus is saying, I am going to be publicly identified with sinners in my impending death. And so, if you keep reading the story, what happens? And I kind of I gave it away a little earlier. But Luke, out of all the Gospel writers, goes to the greatest lengths to show this interaction where there is the king on the cross with a sign above his head that says the king of the Jews. And he paints the picture of a beaten, bloody Messiah pinned to his cross-shaped throne 
between none other, none other than two criminals. So you know Mark's gospel when the disciples asked, hey Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left hand? And Jesus said, that's for my father to give. That's for my father to decide. Who was at the right and the left hand of the throne of the Son of God? Sinners. Criminals. This is the picture. I'm, uh, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And then, amazingly, one, the one mocks him. The other criminal responds positively to Jesus. And Jesus gives him his peace. And then if you keep reading the gospel, the gospel ends with the risen Lord and the command to go tell everyone that you can have forgiveness of sins, you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And the point becomes exceedingly clear. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors so that through his shameful death, they might be numbered with him, the risen and the glorious Christ. And that all starts with the message of Christmas, with the Savior being born in a manger. So in the words of Paul, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that's the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see this trade that happens? And this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we can say, yeah, we celebrate and we hold to and we cherish the message of Christmas on December 26th. (laughs) Because the cradle points to the cross. It points to God's desire to, at his own expense, save sinners, to save you and me, and to bring eternal peace to those who trust in him. But that's not the end of our text. Verse 15 and following says this in Luke 2. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So we have this amazing message of peace that comes to the lowly through a lowly Savior King. And then we see in this last part of our text that there are three natural human responses. And they all begin with the letter P. So it'll be easy to memorize. Okay. These are natural outflows of an experience of the good news of great joy and peace. So the first thing, Luke makes sure that we see that there is a chain reaction of revelation that takes place in this story. I'll explain. So first, God sends an angel with a message to some shepherds about the birth of of the Messiah, and then the shepherds, what do they do? Well, let's go check this out. But what do they do when they go check it out? They go tell others about this message. And it's actually made really clear 
by this one word in verses 15 and 17, made known. The angel made known, and now in verse 17, they made known the saying. In other words, after receiving the good news of the Savior King's birth, the shepherds became the first evangelists. They preached the good news of the Savior King's birth to others. And so, what is a natural response to hearing this message of peace? A natural response is to go preach it. It is to plead with a world that does not know the depths of the peace and saving power of God. It is to, it is to plead with them, repent and turn, believe in the Son of God. It's not to hide from the darkness. It is not to run from the darkness. But it is to shine like a city on a hill, like a lamp on a table, unashamedly and brightly for everyone to see. And when we speak about evangelism, I, this, this can become like this sore spot, you know? Like if, if I were to ask you like, hey, who here is really good at evangelism? Like, just raise your hand. <laughs> I, maybe there's a few people that would be like, I'm really great at it. But I th- it's, it's almost like prayer and evangelism go together. It's like, I can always grow <laughs> in evangelism. And we often feel ill-equipped. Um, but I, I can't help but wonder if sometimes we just overthink it. Some of the best advice, and so I, I did not come up with this, but some of the best advice that I, that I heard is that it, it's... A huge part of evangelism is letting it be this natural outflow of my relationship with God, of knowing and experiencing the message of peace. So, like, for example, we we go to, like, a good new restaurant or we watch some movie that we're super enthusiastic about, and what's the first thing we're doing at work the next day? Hey, man, I was at this great restaurant last night. Their steak was so good. You're evangelizing about a restaurant. You're spreading the good news about a restaurant. And it is the natural outflow of your good experience with this restaurant. Or whatever the thing is. If God is a real part of our lives, we're experiencing him, we're experiencing his peace. This is some of the best advice I've ever gotten. Just talk about it like it's a normal part of your life. Like, I think sometimes when we evangelize, we turn to people like, hey, so, um, let me, t- do you know about Jesus? And we make it this, like, really awkward thing. When, like, for us, when we're talking to each other, it's like, the Lord is good. He's helping me. He's teaching me. I think a huge part of us talking about this with our friends and family co-workers with people in our city who don't know Christ is to talk about him like he's real because he is real. He is the king. He is the prince of peace. But I also think what we see here is it is the natural outflow of experiencing and knowing God and his message of peace. And so it sounds counterintuitive and it sounds like I could be giving us an excuse to not go preach. Remember, I'm, I'm saying a natural result is to preach. But I think another part of this is you want to grow in your evangelism. 
you get to know God better. You get to know the message of peace better. You saturate your life in it. Because when you know him and you know that message, man, it's, it, the natural result is it's pouring out of your life. I could give a bad analogy. It's like when you eat garlic, it just... <laughs> but I mean, it's like... But this is, this is infinitely better. And actually, it goes into the second point. So we see... This message came to others, and it says that they were amazed. They wondered in verse 18. But then it, it focuses in on Mary, and it contrasts her. And it's not that they were bad for wondering about this message, but Mary did something, I think, more. It says that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the idea is that Mary surveyed all that God had told her and all that had transpired up to this point. Basically, everything that Luke has told us up to chapter 2, verse 19 and she tucked it all away in her heart to think about it, to dwell on it, to understand its, its significance. And so we see that, that, that the second natural outflow of experiencing and hearing and knowing this message of peace and the God who brings it is to ponder it, to think about it, to mull over it in our minds and hearts. It's to dwell on the message of the gospel. It's like digging in a mine to find more gold. And one of the ways, you know, we could talk about, man, like our personal devotions, a Bible reading plan. You know, I, I, I think sometimes I and we can forget the significance of the fact that God has, like he chose to give us a book that we have to read and think about grammar. And periods and conjugations. Like he could have made a Netflix series that we could binge watch, but he didn't. And I was encouraged by a friend who just, he was talking about the fact that he really wants his kids to be readers because Christians were people of a book. If all my children know how to do is look at a screen. It's going to, it, it, it actually fights against the Christian trajectory of being able to read a book and understand it. And so I think one of the ways, one way out of many that we can ponder the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel is to participate in deep study of scripture, like actual like you're geeking out over scripture. We talk about it like it's this negative thing. And, that, and I think sometimes we can conceive of we come to church on Sunday morning, I got my food for the week and I'm good to go. It's just not how this, like there is a richness. There is no shame in geeking out over the Bible. And one of the ways that our church actually does that is through our midweek Bible studies. Ellie's excited. <laughs> She's like, yeah, preach it, Ben. But seriously, like when the men meet on Wednesday nights or the women meet throughout the week, there is a richness of deep study of Scripture that takes place. And it, and it gives us food for thought to ponder the gospel. And that's life-giving. And it actually fuels our evangelism. But the other thing that it fuels is this last thing. 
Just as the angels, when they announced the good news, glorified God, so the shepherds, when they announced the good news, and they see that everything that, God, that the angel told them was true, they walk away praising and glorifying God. When you know the peace of God, it utterly affects and transforms your life down to the emotional heart level, and it causes joy and praise to bubble up. So to ponder this good news leads to our joy. It actually leads to our joy. And so to end with the question I posed at the beginning, is the message of Christmas just for Christmas time? I just don't think that's worth asking. <laughs> it's, it's a pointless question. It was a dumb question for me to put in the sermon, but it kind of fits. Is, is, Chris, is the message of Christmas a worthy object of thought for us even on December 26th? And I would say yes. Because it's God's message of peace to the lowly through a lowly Savior King. And the more we savor that message, the more joy we will know.